so you're up there, someone's come in and, and you've got to sentence them, okay? They've, they've done something wrong and you don't know their life story. Like how do you, how does that sit with you? How do you know? And she goes, look, if you've got a good lawyer, your lawyer will say, you know, you're this age, you went through this in your childhood, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I see this in court all the time where everyone's life is reduced to this 30-second snippet, really, you know, maybe a minute. It's crazy, isn't it? Happy 2023, beautiful podcast fam. It's great to be back with a new year uh, because as I've said quite a few times, last year on a personal note for me was shit. <laughs> um, hope you guys had a great year last year and hope you have an even better year this year. Um, but we're excited to be back with a fresh start on 2023. Um, we've been MIA for six weeks or so, so I hope everybody hasn't gone anywhere, um, but looking forward to some exciting shows. So this podcast that we've got today for you, um, you just heard the voice of Shane Cuthbert. Um, he's a legend. We recorded this last year and literally right after we recorded the show, um, I dropped uh, coffee all over my uh, computer and laptop, which I had my whole life on and realized how much I'm kind of dependent on this bloody computer. <laughs> um, so it took a while to get it fixed and then we had a break and now we're back. So this is a recording from a podcast that we did late last year in December, which was really cool. Um, it's a great conversation. He's got a really interesting story. Recommend that you also head over to Instagram and things like that and give him a follow. We'll make sure we put the links in the show notes. Um, but yeah, just again, really excited to be back. Now, a couple of things for this year. Subscribe to our newsletter. It's popping off. Um, we've changed the name from the hump day on to the good gear. Uh, I think it kind of aligns a little bit more with Real Drug Talk. And just another small change, all email that you get relating to the newsletter will come from a Real Drug Talk email. I think it's mine, Jack, at realdrugtalk.com.au. Um, uh, so yeah, um, just don't be freaked out if it's not Jack at Connection Based Living, just to kind of streamline the two organizations a little bit. Um, anyway, I'll stop banging on about uh, me and us. Oh, last thing, actually, because it's a new year, as always, this show is brought to you by Connection Based Living, which is our outpatient program. So if you're looking for help and solutions, but you don't want to check into rehab, uh, we might be able to help. Um, we help people break addictive patterns without having to go to rehab and without having to give up substances forever um, if you don't want to. So um, yeah, if that's of interest to you, check out the links in the description. Um, otherwise, I'm going to shut up and get into the year and get into the show. All right, looking forward to it, guys. Uh, thanks for listening again, and uh, we'll be vibing in your ears again soon. Peace. Boom, what's happening, everybody? Um, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Now, uh, I must apologize to our, our guest who I'll introduce in a second, but um, today, well, we're, we're kind of living up to the name of the podcast, uh, Real Drug Talk. This is, it kind of feels like a bit fucking raw, this recording session, because I'm, um, I'm moving house and shit is everywhere. So um, I have a bit of a ghetto setup, but that's okay, um, as long as everybody can still hear me and it's coming through loud and clear. Uh, but yeah, we've got a cool show today, um, personal story with someone that's doing really cool stuff in the space. Um, we've got Shane Cuthbert on. How you going, mate? 
Mate, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. No worries. No, excited to um, excited to hear your story and um, yeah, get get into it all. So I came across you, mate. Um, yeah, after we did the podcast um, with Russell Manser, um, and I noticed that you like kind of just share some of his stuff along with heaps of other people in the space too. Um, and then, yeah, just like had a little bit of a look at your social media and you got a bit of a following and doing some great stuff. So I thought, yeah, this is, this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to kind of have conversations with a bunch of different people and, um, get everybody's story out there. So I'm excited to hear yours cause it seems like it's been, um, quite the story. So did you want to give us the three minute, like sort of snapshot of yourself and then we can, <laughs> we can go from there. It's, um, it's it's so crazy because I've got <laughs> such a big story. I, I think I think most people do anyway. You know, I think anyone's story is um, pretty cool. You know, it's personal to them. But um, yeah, look, I've I've overcome many uh, hurdles in my life, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, you know, and now um, I really do a lot of life coaching, um, a lot of volunteer work, community advocacy. Um, I'm studying a double de- degree in law and psychology, um, wow. just so I can help more people. So I'm really just about, uh, helping people. Um, as you mentioned before, Russell Manser, um, uh, great guy, spent a lot of time in prison. I also spent a little bit of time, um, in prison, um, in my lifetime. So, um, you know, we do share a lot of each other's stuff and, um, you know, we're both really trying to support each other. And there's a lot of other people in the space too that um, are really supportive, which is great. Um, social media and, and even this platform here, being able to talk and share stories, I think is great. Um, we're able to reach people now, um, people that we couldn't reach before. And also people like me that, you know, we've got this lived experience and this, I think, a real genuine ability to help people. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas 10, 20 years ago, Unless Oprah, you know, invited you on the, uh, some people probably actually listening might not remember Oprah, but <laughs> big talk show, um, you know, if, if you weren't discovered and you weren't on TV or if the media didn't give you that attention, um, you didn't have that ability. So yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for that now. And um, yeah, that's awesome, a little bit mate. about me, just, just helping people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I love it. So, and and it's interesting, you're so right. I actually put a post up on my story about that today. Um, like, we're just like a tiny little speck in the fucking ocean of the world with this stuff. There's much bigger social media platforms than us. But yeah, like in the last 28 days, I think we got like 2.6 million views or something like that, um, which blows me away on our YouTube channel, which is just new, really. Um, and it just made me think cause, and, and you brought it up there and I don't know if you agree, but, um, particularly with this stuff, like people, I, I do a lot of things with like government and stuff and like, you know, people in those roles tend to just fucking complain about social media and all the <laughs> negative stuff, which yeah. is right. And it's there instead of just like putting their heads together and, and actually doing some awesome fucking health promotion, you know, like I just think if everybody got on and, and did the stuff that you're doing and focused like how many more people could we reach um and and help rather than just kind of complaining about it <laughs> yeah man exactly i 100 percent agree um you know but yeah 
you know, like I said, like it's just great that, you know, we have this pro- platform and that opportunity. I mean, like 2.6 million views, you know, hopefully there's people out there. I- I'm sure there is, you know, um, one of those people or maybe a, l- a lot of those people that, you know, have, have taken something away, been able to put something in their toolbox or um, get a little bit of help and support um, because of that. Yep. So it's great. Awesome, mate. So, so obviously the work that you do now is driven out of that lived experience that you talk about, that you talked about. So tell, yeah. tell us your story. Yeah. What, what happened? What, what went on to land you in prisons and, you know, all that sort of stuff? Man, um, you know, like I said, I've had a, a, a very crazy life. I've had lots of different, um, different aspects to it. Things probably you wouldn't believe, but really, um, I go back to my childhood um, yep. and, and, and that's something that obviously, you know, in the psychology space that I'm in now, that's a lot of stuff really starts there. Um, yep. Stuff can happen later. You can go through something traumatic or a car accident or a plane crash or you know, there can be other things that happen in life later that, you know, you might need some help dealing with. But I think for the most part, definitely, you know, a lot of stuff does go back to our childhood because that's where we learn to be who we are. We learn our behaviors developed our personalities um and that sort of thing and and i grew up uh in western sydney um i live in cairns now but i grew up in western sydney i was born in the hawkesbury hospital uh so really really west (laughs) um at the foot of the blue mountains uh you got the nepean river there um windsor river and um in 1990 so i'm 32 and I was born, you know, obviously to two parents. I had a mum and dad. They were together at the time. Um, they split up and, you know, when I was very, very young, so there's about two years between me and my brother, uh, my yep. full brother. And um, they'd split up, I think, in between that and then not long after he was born as well. Um, we lived in Windsor in a house that my dad bought um, and if you talk to him, you know, he just says, look, I, I uh, come home from soccer training one night and everything was packed and you guys were gone. Um, yeah. What we did, we'd actually moved in with his parents. So even right. now he has a very fractured relationship with his mum because he feels like he was betrayed. Um, and she thinks, well, I was just looking out for the grandkids, you know, making sure they had uh, food on the table and, and somewhere to go. But when you're really young, you don't understand that. And I work with a lot of people that, you know, have parents that separated when they were younger, actually even teenagers, people that are 18, 19, and their parents get a divorce. It's really traumatic for them. I don't think it matters what age you're at. When your parents split up, uh, it is a significant thing in your life because that's all the stability you have known up until that point. Um, really crashing and, and breaking away. Um, yep. So for me, obviously, being young, I was three or four, I didn't understand my parents were separated. Um, yep. Also at the time, you know, child psychology wasn't as advanced as it was right now. So everyone just thought I was acting out uh, in need of attention. Um, you know, my mum used to call me an attention seeker, but not actually asking the question. Well. Yep why is he seeking attention? What does he need it for? You know, you know, and to yeah. answer that question, it's because 
I, I didn't have a dad. I grew up without my dad. I didn't have much to do with him till I was about 15, 16 later on in life. We missed out yep. on that close relationship. Um, yeah. We're sort of like mates now, which is cool. It's cool to be mates with your dad and sit down and have a beer and have a chat. But it's also nice to have a father figure that's there that, you know, does punish you or pull you up when you've done something wrong or, you know, is yep. there to love you and, and, and care about you. Um, Te- teach so you about I, life as well. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's it, 100%. And so, you know, I really grew up without that. And another thing that still really... Uh, <laughs> Still really, I find difficult to just, just comprehend this. Um... Sorry, I just, mate. <laughs> I just thought I'd stop. I thought you can, and you can cut that out later. <laughs> no, no, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. We'll, we'll probably, we'll probably um, just roll with it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Man, I, I remember being about four or five and my mum had rented a house on the same street as my family home. So we drive in the car and we drive past our home every day. And this is this was quite traumatic for me because I'm thinking, why can't I go home? And every day my mum's got to say, that's not your home anymore. But I would see my dad there because he still lived there. Wow. So I'd be thinking, why can't I go see dad? Why can't I go home? Yeah. Then my mum was really good friends with the neighbours as well. This, this was even more traumatic for me. So we'd get babysat by the neighbours and... You know, yeah. there was days there where we'd be there on the weekend. We'd be playing in the backyard and yeah. our dad's out the backyard mowing the lawn and I'm looking over the fence like, that's my dad. And, you know, he'd come over and say hello. And I didn't understand. Hang on a second. Why I can't see my dad? Why can't I go home? Dad's home. Why isn't dad looking after me? I'm getting babysat by the neighbours. And I was really confused. Yeah. So obviously, that leads to you don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you're loved. You feel like you've done something wrong. You think, wow, my, my dad's gone because I did something wrong or misbehaved or something like that. Um, and that, that's, really, that's really upsetting because that, set the, that really set the stage for a lot of the troubles I had later on in my life. That was the foundation. My, my foundation mm. that I built was based on that. Um, I've struggled my whole life. Uh, not feeling good enough uh, about myself, yeah. having a low self-esteem. Um, I've managed to turn that into a really good thing. So I'm, a, I'm an overachiever now. And really what's behind that is, is it's really sad, you know, because, you know, I know that behind that is that feeling of not being good enough. So that overachieving, doing these things, trying to help people, that's where it comes from. Um, That's like the validation. Still, yeah, still every day trying to do something to be good enough. Um, But it has has also been good for me as well. I've had a lot of success in business. Um, I live a really, really good life now. Um, But I'm always, I've always been driven. And there's nothing wrong with being driven. But it, it is sad when you look at, you know, behind the curtains, why I am so driven. And I do get asked that often, like people think, um, Someone asked me the other day and they said, man, you're really doing a lot. Um, it's like you're trying to catch <laughs> up. And, I, and yeah. in a way, yeah, it probably looks like I am. I'm, I'm trying to catch up. I'm, I'm still relatively young, but I try to pack so much into my week and my days as I can. I'm always trying to do more. And it's also a bit of a distraction as well because when you're busy, you're not sitting around 
feeling depressed or thinking about maybe things in the past that could have gone a different way or could be better. So yeah. basically, um, you know, to rewind, I'm a, I'm a young kid, single, single mum, raised by a single mum, looking for attention, um, you know, acting out in class at school, getting suspended, um, not hurting anyone or doing anything wrong. I can't actually even remember what I was suspended for, to be honest. I, I guess disrupting the class or, you know, something. I was, I was a little bit of a class clown too when I was older in high school. You know, I was always joking around and, and doing yeah. something funny that the teachers may or may not have approved of. But um, yeah. really, then I, uh, very, very crazy, I then became a test dummy for Ritalin uh, a bunch of other drugs. So I remember going right. into the city when I was about seven or eight and every four hours they would give me a different drug. They'd make me do these different tests, these different things. I was one of the first people in Australia to try out this new, um, there's a guy from America, Dr. Alex. I can't remember his last name. I remember him as Dr. Alex. He had this thing that you'd put on your head and they could measure all your you know, brain neurons and things like that. So just imagine putting 50 wires into a child's head, you know, and they're glued on sort of like an MRI thing, you know. Yeah, um, wow. Doing that and I could drive a car if I could concentrate. So if I started thinking about what I was going to have for dinner, this car that was on the road would crash off the road. So it's like playing PlayStation but with my mind, not a control. Wow. And because of that, I started doing a lot of media. So I was in like Women's Day, Women's Weekly, Current Affair, <laughs> all these places. And so here you go, you've got Dr. Alex has got this uh, leading study or research or something and I'm the guinea pig. He Ooh. wants to advertise it. He wants to have it out in the media. So I'm surrounded then by all these people that were sort of using me as a little bit of a monkey or, or a test dummy. And my mum was just going along with it because she was, oh, look, I'm a single mum. I don't really know how to control him. I don't really know how to how to change him. You know, he yeah. does this, he does that. So she's going along with it. And I remember Current Affair coming out to our house. Uh, it's probably about eight or nine or something then as well. And and they're sort of standing around the producers and the camera guys just looking at me like, oh, can you can you do something bad? Like, can you do something that we can put on TV? Um, and what's crazy is they end up then instructing me to get up onto the roof of the house. You know, oh, look, film him, he's on the roof of the house. And they made this story that was like, oh, this out-of-control kid, this poor mum that needs help, you know, she's she's trying everything, every drug and every everything. And I look back at it now as an adult and I think, man, that was really, really messed up. Yeah. Um, complete I complete started... media beat-up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but to do it to a child, you yeah. know what I mean? Like it, it's just like here's this poor kid that doesn't know what's going on. He's just doing now what you tell him. And then yeah. I learned to get attention, um, really negative attention as a child doing these crazy things. If I do these crazy things, I'll get to be on TV. Um, yeah. And I don't remember people saying um, it was a bad thing that I was on TV. I remember, you know, having family and friends and stuff that were celebrating the fact I was on TV, you know, like, oh, well, you're going to be on TV tonight, you're famous. So I yeah. thought it was cool. Now I look back and I go, you know what, I don't really want to be on TV for that. <laughs> um, 
you know, and as a child. So it really messed with my development. And when I was nine, I ended up in, uh, it's, it's called Red Bank Hospital. Actually, I think it's called Red Bank School now. Uh, it's at Westmead right. Hospital in New South Wales. It's, uh, you've got two classrooms with about five students in each. So it's run by the Department of Education and also the Department of Health. So every student yep. has their own personal nurse. Yeah, There was some pretty out of control kids there. There was some people with really serious mental health issues. You know, there was, there was a little girl there, I guess the same age that would eat cockroaches and spiders and stuff that I right. thought was weird at the still is a little bit weird at the time and she'd try to yep. find mouses and eat and it so she had sure. whatever was going on with her then I had kids that were from Mount Druitt that were in there for you know breaking into cars and people's houses and that sort of thing um nine-year-old kids you know so like these young kids one of my best friends that I still have now I met in Red Bank uh he suffers from Asperger's He's now, you can look him up on uh, social media. He's the Australian Donald Trump. So so he walks around dressed up as Donald Trump for a living. He's on a disability pension and that's what he does. It makes him happy. So these are the kinds of people that <laughs> I was really in school with and um, grew up with. And I remember thinking that this was great because I went from being in a class of 30, you know, relatively normal kids to... Now I've got a teacher and I've only got to share the attention with four other kids. At recess, lunchtime, we would go into a cafeteria, like, you know, the American movies where they sit down at a cafeteria and they get whatever they want. I used to do that. I was like, I grew up on uh, Vegemite and cheese sandwiches that got soggy, you know, in the bottom of my lunch bag <laughs> to now I'm having like wedges, pies, burgers, all sorts of stuff. So I thought it was great, but I, I picked up a lot of bad habits there. I learned yeah. how to swear there. I learned how to really, really did learn how to get out of control. Like if I needed to, you know, throw a chair through a window or something like that. And um, yeah, still, again, never hurt anybody. It was all just an attention thing or trying to get my way. Problem is yeah. when you teach a child to be like that and then they turn 18, it's not fun anymore. It's not cute anymore. It's not, oh, this poor child's got some issues. It's, it's uh, okay, mate, it's, it's off to prison with you. So um, I think there's, there's probably yeah. a lot of people out there in the world I can imagine. I'm, there's probably a few that I went to school with that have ended up in prison, um, especially the guys that were, you know, breaking into houses and stealing cars, you know, at that young age. So that's very hard to turn your life around later mm. when you have been conditioned from a child, you've basically, it's like to get good at anything. I play the drums really good. I'm amazing, right? At, at playing drums. Uh, I started when I was seven. Yeah. I got good because I practiced. Now, yeah. think about what being a kid, uh, breaking into houses, breaking into cars, that sort of thing, you're practicing that. So you get really good at it. But that's very, very hard to then try and unlearn those behaviors and those things later on in life. 100%. Um, so I went to, yeah, went to Red Bank for about, I think, nine months. So I'd done K to three in school. Yeah. Um, 
I wasn't expelled for school. I was given a 21-day suspension and then I was asked not to come back. Then uh, I ended yeah. up getting offered the place in Red Bank and that was probably during year four. So I did about nine months. Then I did a couple of months at another normal school, probably two, three months, uh, Marion Heights Public School, just just in Blacktown there. And yeah, that was it. I couldn't fit in. I couldn't fit in anymore. I, my social skills were atrocious. You know, guys were playing with Pokemon cards and things like that. And I was like, you know, wanted to talk about, you know, breaking into houses and cars and things. I, I never did, by the way. But, you know, I've, I've then gone from yeah. fitting in with these people that were very, very outside of the box to then yeah. trying to fit in with like normal kids. And I, I couldn't do it. And I struggled. And I disrupted the class. I wanted to get out of the class. I didn't want to be there. I didn't feel like I fit in. All yep. of a sudden, I wasn't getting the attention that I, I just got used to. Um, yep. And I'd learn to play up and get my way. And so I then was, I think I was expelled from there in year five. And my mum homeschooled me for year six, year seven. I went to Blacktown Boys High School partway through year eight. And yep. I was kicked out of there in year nine. So I'd only done about four or five years of schooling um, as a kid. I Thankfully, the thing that did save me is that, as I mentioned before, I started playing drums when I was seven years old. I got really, really good. Um, you know, I started bands when I was in Blacktown Boys High School and, um, you know, I was 13, yeah. 14, doing that sort of thing, got into that life, you know, becoming a musician, you know, wanting to be a rock star. Um, which was pr really a good path for me because it was like that's okay, that's that's really cool because they get attention. Everybody yep, loves them. You can them. let the wild wildness <laughs> you know? out on stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know that was a real good uh, that was a real good path for me. And when I was fifteen, I went on my first tour around Australia. So I was like fifteen, out of school, out of home. Then also at the same point. And here I was, I got asked to fill in for another drummer in a band and on a tour, I had a whole tour booked. Um, we were playing venues, you know, on the other side of Australia in Perth, you know, a million miles away. Um, and that was cool. So that kept me out of trouble till I was yeah. about, I went on my last tour in 2009. So I was 19. So you know, okay, so just a quick a four, reset on the podcast. Then, Sorry, so everybody, we, we disappeared into the Zoom universe. I so I thought I'd take this opportunity to quickly tell you about connection-based um, living again. We talked about it at the so start of the show, but a lot of people skip over that. I do in every podcast I listen to. Um, but it's the new year. So yeah, we wanted to uh, let people know how we can help um, because we know there's a lot of people out there looking for help. So connection-based living is our outpatient program that we run uh, where basically we help people to overcome and beat addictive patterns without having to go to rehab that's right there's no life interruptions um, you know we uh, do the treatment um, and take you through the process and the program um, in a way in which yeah you completely don't have to leave the kids behind skip work go and stay away from family and friends for you know 30 to 30 days to six months or anything like that so um, it has been really popular in the uptake because of that it's a full-scale rehab program um, but again you don't have to actually go away 
uh, and we've found that it seems to be working better because you're actually practicing all the changes that you need to make in a real life setting and scenario. So if that sounds of interest to you and you're someone that doesn't want to engage in that traditional rehabilitation system um, and that sounds like it might be a fit, uh, yeah, we might be able to help. Other thing to mention and note uh, is that we actually um, run our programs very differently to, again, the traditional methodologies and philosophies. Um, so for instance, um, you know, if you want to um, change your relationship with substances and acknowledge that it's an addictive pattern and problem, but maybe you necessarily don't want to give it up forever, um, we show you how to do that too. We don't believe that, you know, it's never do anything ever again. Nancy Reagan style, um, you know, we, we find that that actually, um, you know, pushes people to, to relapse and using more because of the pressure that comes along with thinking about never using any substances for your life again. And the good news is that it's more than possible. Um, and we've got some really good research and evidence to show you all of that and teach you how to do it. So, Again, I'm going to stop rambling. We're going to go jump back into the show, but because it's a new year, I thought I'd tell you about that if you skipped over the top of it. Um, love and peace. Glad to be back um, and back to the show. Boom. We're back, everybody. Really sorry about that. Uh, I was having a bit of a sook to Shane. Um, the, the, the Riverside universe got us again and we got sucked into the black hole. Um, so sorry, mate. You were, you were telling me about like when you're on tour um or when you were finishing i think is where we're up to yeah um you know so i'm about 19 uh yeah so i'd spent years touring on and off playing in bands you know a little bit of success and um you know life was great but then you know i just got to the point where i was in a lot of bands that just weren't going anywhere um or not working you know I, i had one where we rehearsed every week for 12 months couldn't keep a singer down you know guys want to go solo or get girlfriends or join other bands and being a drummer is really really hard because you've got no control at all if you play guitar and sing you know you worst case scenario you can go play at a pub on a friday night you know make a couple hundred bucks as a drummer you rely on every single other member of the band and even these days it's even harder i don't know how many drummers are out there these days but everyone's making music in their room so that whole that's it's all changed, but that was the point where I started, you know, smoking a whole bunch of weed. And look, I I smoked weed, did drugs, drank a lot on tour as well, but it was more accept, acceptable, um, yeah. And it wasn't adversely affecting my life. Uh, but when I come off tour, and you know, bands sort of wound up, you know, I realised here I was, I was about you know, 21, 22, didn't have a driver's license, didn't have a job, didn't have all these things that all these other people around me had that was normal because I was just living this like completely different life. And that's all good. But when it ends, you know, it's very depressing. I got very depressed. Um, You know, I was doing stupid stuff, uh, getting in trouble, getting arrested. I, the first time I spent a night in custody, and it's actually sort of a funny story. It's just a little bit embarrassing now that I'm a bit older, but we were following, I was in my friend's car. I'm in the passenger seat. We're following a police car. <laughs> I thought it would be funny to lean out of the window of the car 
and I was uh, yelling out the theme song to Ghostbusters, but replacing Ghostbusters with my name. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm yelling out, you know, when there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call Shane Cuthbert? And they probably couldn't hear what I was singing or whatever because they stopped, pulled over the car. They're like, mate, you've been a public nuisance. You're not wearing a seatbelt. You're intoxicated in public, blah, blah, blah. So these little sort of misdemeanor things, but it was Christmas Eve. They refused me bail because I was being a smart ass. And they said, well, it's Christmas Eve, mate. You're, um, you're, you're going to jail. So I went to Penrith. Penrith has these holding cells. So it wasn't really jail, but, you know, it was... Yeah, you got a cell, you got a cellmate. I remember my cellmate was coming off drugs. He was just vomiting and, you know, diarrhea on the toilet all night. Um, it was cold. Um, that was, yeah, so early 20s. And then it just went downhill from there. Um, yep. You know, just, again, lots of stupid stuff because I was off my head on drugs. Uh you know, high as a kite, drunk as a skunk, because I'm trying to cope with this depression. I'm also trying to get that thrill of, you know, being on tour, having that, you've got, that's a natural high. Like that's like cool. People are coming up to you asking for autographs and, you know, you feel really popular and cool and everyone's there to see you and paying money. And, and even at the club later, people are buying you drinks. And yeah. so that's really cool. And then you go to, hey, I'm a washed up, nobody, no one cares about me. All my friends, <laughs> they've got jobs and wives and kids and, and you know, living that life and, and it's really, really depressing. And then I think I just started getting in trouble with police and, and then the courts for that. I actually um, I made worldwide news oh, around the world. It went viral sort of thing. Before viral was a thing, this went viral. I went yeah. to court in a clown costume. Uh, I took off my wig inside the courtroom to show the magistrate respect. He didn't think it was funny. He said, look, Mr. Cuthbert, I, I'm seriously thinking about holding you in contempt of court. What are you here for? I was there for damaging the side mirror of a taxi. This taxi driver had driven off or something and I can't really remember. I was really intoxicated at the time, but I got found not guilty of that. Um, yeah. but I, yeah, went to court in a clown costume, you know, channel nine news was there. It was just, the story was look at this idiot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it went, you know, went around the world. Um, so you can still Google that one, Shane Cuthbert clown costume. Uh, it's out there somewhere. And I had a, I had a partner at the time. I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know how I had a girlfriend through all of this, but. I remember she was like from a wealthy family, very well-to-do, went to university, really was with me because I was the cool guy that, you know, that, that really like niche. I didn't have a motorbike, but you know, in like the old movies, like the parents are like, oh, the guy shows up on his motorbike to take their daughter out. You know, it was like, I was yeah. like that guy. Here's this guy that wears tight jeans, ripped clothes, goes to clubs, um, so she thought that was cool, obviously, and it was when I was doing that. But when yep. it sort of turned and it transitioned and it was like, hey, I'm not a rock star anymore. I'm just a bum that sits around on Centrelink smoking weed. And then <laughs> she's sitting down having dinner with her parents and they're like, oh, my God, 
that yep. is your boyfriend is on TV in a courtroom in a clown costume. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was just like, you know, story of my life at that time. Um, I did a lot of funny, stupid things. Another one I got actually wasn't my fault. Um, I, but I'm always good for a laugh and a joke. That's the type of yep. guy I am. And yeah. uh, a friend of mine booked me a plane ticket in the name of Kermit the Frog. And so I got arrested by the federal police. It was a Commonwealth offence. So like super serious obtaining a passenger ticket in the in the name of someone else. I didn't actually obtain it. Funny story. I had this, uh, I went to the Jetstar check-in where, you, you know, you check yourself in and it prints the ticket out. Yeah. So I've typed in Kermit, last name, Frog. <laughs> And I've got the ticket and then I've gone to the toilet. And while I'm in the toilet, I left the ticket in the toilet. Anyway, I've thought, oh, fuck. Someone's going to pick up that ticket and look at it and see that it says Kermit the Frog and, like, you know, let the authorities know. And I was like, <laughs> I was starting to stress out. And so I went back to the self-help kiosk. I was like, I wonder if it'll spit me out another ticket. So I did, Kermit Frog. And it did. And I was like, okay, I'm good to go. I'm good to go. So I'm there. I'm, like, starting to, like, get less anxious thinking, Okay, I'm I'm cool. And then um, I'm lining up for to get on the plane. And, you know, the Jetstar person's like, hey, um, scan the ticket. And it did like the, eh. and it was like, oh, can you just come this way with me? And so <laughs> here I am. I've stepped off to the side with this Jetstar rep. And um, he's gone, oh, look, can I just see your driver's license? And, like, before I even pulled out, I was like, um, yeah, but... Um, it's not going to match the name on the ticket. Um, anyway, I pulled out my driver's license. He took that. He was like, oh, look, uh, if you just wait here, you'll just be arrested by Australian Federal Police shortly. And I was like, oh, fuck. So I just ran. I ran out of the airport. I got in a taxi. I went home. A, I tell you what, airport security is not very good. Um, I can't believe I got out of the airport. I could have been a terrorist or something got in a taxi and got home and then I called my lawyer and I was like yeah so this happened and he was just like are you are you being serious like is this a joke I was like no well it is a joke but no I am being serious <laughs> so he took me down I had to hand myself in I had to sit there in the Australian Federal Police building they took me into this uh, interview room out the back sitting there and they're like okay look we've we pretty much know it was a joke you know your lawyer filled us in you thought it was funny we know you know we've already they had all this info already. They knew what credit card it come from. It was my friend's. He lived in Melbourne. So they're like, okay, look, we're AFP. We can go get him. And I just said, look, it was a joke. This is what happened. So, you know, confessed. I didn't have much option after I'd left my driver's license with the Jetstar clerk. Um, but um, stupid things. Stupid things, being drunk, high, thinking they're funny. They were funny at the time. I mean, I, it still gives people a good laugh, but yeah. now it is holding me back in my later life, my professional life, trying to be taken seriously and stuff like that. So if anyone's listening and you're doing stupid things, yeah, don't do it. It's just going to set you back later. So, so, so some of the like um, prison time that you did and stuff, was it all for stuff like that where you were just being, just being... I'm not calling you an idiot, but just kind of being a young guy that was just doing dumb, dumb shit. Was it, or, or was there more like serious things that happened throughout your life that landed you in, in trouble? So 
so I've been to prison four times. The yep. first time was for two months. I was found not guilty of those offences, released. Uh, again, the third and fourth time, the same thing happened. So I did six months and a two months not guilty. Actually, the prosecution dropped all of its um, charges. So yep. offered offered no evidence for the charges. So I only spent six months. This It was the second time I'd been uh, in custody, six months in prison um, for 11 offences. They were more serious. They they weren't funny, but they were still related to drugs, alcohol, uh, especially alcohol. So, you know, one of them was drink driving. Now, I've been caught drink driving four times. Yeah. I have drink driven a lot more than that. Um, yeah. I don't anymore. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just not worth it. Um, yeah. So it was my fourth time drink driving. Uh, I evaded police. What happened is, is I went home and I saw that police were in my driveway and I was like, oh, fuck. I'd literally actually just drink drove from the police station. I was on bail for things, <laughs> had to report. I reported. And then what I did is I hit reverse, the police yep. saw me, and I only reversed 100 metres down the street. But that was evade police. Um, that's pretty serious. That's a minimum two months in prison and I think two years without a licence or something. And I got out of the car. I was sort of backed onto an industrial area, so I ran through this industrial area, then jumped my back <laughs> fence. But what happened was I got done for trespassing then because I'd gone through you know, some company's back dock area or something like that. Um, breach of bail. Um, yeah. I had a, I got found with a shotgun shell. So that was having an explosive device, uh, not device, uh, an explosive or something like that. So right, that wasn't right. serious, but just 11 charges of just, I was out of control then, like just, just drunk drink driving. Might have been a few drink drivings, resist arrest, evade yep. police. Um, so I actually got sentenced for that one. I, I pleaded guilty, um, got sentenced to six months. Yeah. And then, yeah, got released. Um, yeah. Um, it's it's kind of interesting, like, and I, I think it's an interesting story, you know, because often we talk, I'm not diminishing what, what's happened. Obviously, that would be like, um, yeah, challenging to deal with, but... I think that happens to a lot of people. I don't know if you'd agree or what you've seen, but yeah, like a lot of the people we've spoken to, um, yeah, they're, they're doing robberies or whatever to like fuel their addiction, which is probably like stereotypical stuff. But from your from your experience, and, and I've heard that from a lot of people, is that there's just a lot of like unnecessary kind of pain and um, consequences that happen just kind of being out of control using drugs and alcohol and and whatever else you know is that is yeah. that kind of how yeah. you summarize it and what your experience has been like yeah it's just that it sort of just comes with it it's like it's like a consequence that I don't think anyone really plans to go out you know I, I never woke up one day and thought you know I'm really going to get arrested later and going to do this thing it just it just happens, but it happens because you're under the influence the, of, of the things. chaos. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, the first time I went to prison was was in New South Wales. I was only there for two months, as I said. Um, you know, the charges were dropped and and I was released. But the time I was in there, I had this cellmate, 
And his dad was a Crown prosecutor um, down in Cronulla, actually. <laughs> it's a really interesting cellmate, this guy. And, you know, I'm new to prison, so he's, he's, you know, filling me in on everything, giving me the heads up of things. And he was in there for fraud. He'd, he'd um, worked out how to get Woolworths vouchers or something dodgily. Um, he was also going to get junkies and he'd give them drugs basically in return for them signing up to loans for cars, uh, cash loans, things like that. Right, so he'd right, go, right. hey, mate, you've got a clean, uh, what do you call it? Not criminal history. You know, like your financial. Credit score. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you've got a good credit score and you love drugs. Man, he would be there signing them up for a loan, taking them into the bank. Here you go. <laughs> Um, he didn't get caught for that. What he got caught for is he got caught by the Woolworths because it's such a big company, has its own uh, investigation team. Um, so they had a fraud investigation on him, found him, then took the evidence to the police and, and he was done. And, um, man, he got uh, sentenced to six months to a rehab. Um, yep. But he had it all thought out. He said, man, these junkies... And guys doing it tough. They take a screwdriver to a Seven Eleven when they're you know high. They get twenty bucks from the till, and they're doing five years you know for armed armed robbery. He yeah. said, "Man, what I do, I get nothing." He goes, "I just told the judge, hey, um, I, I've got an addiction. Um, get on the merit program in New South Wales. What it was called then it might be something different now, but you know. And then I, I get sentenced to a rehab for six months, and, and I've knocked off you know three hundred thousand dollars worth of Woolworths gift cards or something. And I was like, wow, it's it's so it, it is really crazy because you've got that because you've got that violent element. I guess you know that's why the sentences are a lot longer and a lot bigger. But you know. I don't know if those people really deserve that. You know, from what I know, knowing how people can be affected by drugs and alcohol, these are people that, for the most part, really need some help. Um, yeah. Sitting in prison for five years isn't going to help. That person was not robbing um, the store, you know, with a screwdriver because they were doing it because they were desperate, you know. Yeah. They're not someone that sat down and thought, I'm a criminal mastermind. <laughs> I'm going to take this screwdriver and make a million dollars from the Seven Eleven. They don't think like that. It's guys that they're, they're yeah. trying to get their next hit or a loaf of bread or um, up in Cairns now, we've got a huge uh, Indigenous population here and, and I'm in court quite a bit as a law student. And there's so many guys that have spent the night in custody just because they. there was one guy, he, he took like a microwavable meal from the Seven Eleven or something. This yeah. was a guy that had nothing to eat. You know, the magistrate ended up saying, look, mate, you, you can go. Um, yeah. But these are people that are affected by substances, need a little bit of help, a little bit of support. They're doing stupid uh, jail stints. Yeah. They're not getting that help and the support in prison, I, I can tell you that. And a lot of that's mm. coming out now because you've got guys like me and Russell Manser and, you know, Jeffrey Morgan and, a lot of great guys that are coming out to say, hey, you know, we did 10, 20, 30 years in prison. Didn't help us, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's super interesting as well. I was speaking, we had a guest on not long ago, um, Ta Talia Adams. Um, and yeah, sa same thing. She she did quite a while in, in prison, all just drug charges, um, uh, nothing violent, not like, and 
you know, if you unpack her life and you look at everything, um, it was all just to fuel her own addiction, even though she had like a, a bit of drugs on her, it was all personal use stuff or relating to that to get money for personal use, all of that, right? So all she really needed was some drug and alcohol support. <laughs> um, yet she did all this time in prison and and the, the crazy thing to me, and I don't know if it has affected your life and it's cool to hear that you're doing all this awesome stuff now, but um, yeah, like for, for her and for heaps of other people, it has this ongoing flow on effect. So she wanted to do law as well. Uh, she has to wait like 15 years or 10, 15 years or something like that until she can do it. Um, all this stuff, right? But And it's just super hard for her. She couldn't even get a fucking job at Westfield because of a, you know, criminal record, all for a mistake that she made in her 20s, um, which really, like what you're saying about your story, was all just a way, and the same with Russell Manser, like all just a way to kind of cope with trauma or pain or issues that like had occurred in childhood. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it, what's, to fuck up the rest of someone's life for that, you know? <laughs> what What's crazy is when you've got someone like that that does want to change and says, you know what, I, I want to get off this path. I, I want to get a job and change my life. So they, yeah. they try and then they can't get that job. And it's like, wow, it's we're not rehabilitating people. We're doing the opposite. We're, we're making it more difficult for people to rehabilitate themselves. Um, yeah. You know, you, you've got to be very strong and you've got to be a champion if, if you're going to rehabilitate. I, I think any guy or, or woman that does, um, I have tremendous respect for you because you have had to overcome um, – adversity but also just in your daily life now you're going to face those hurdles that you have to face every day i mean i still get doors closed to me opportunities that i can't have you know because of my past and it's um it's sad i'd, I'd like to see more of that change i um i recently sat down with a magistrate pat o'shane for a documentary so sbs and nitv are filming a documentary on pat o'shane um, Pat O'Shane was a magistrate in Sydney. The first time I ever went to court, Pat O'Shane was the magistrate that sentenced me. So I got a call from this documentary saying, hey, it'd be really cool. We heard that you, you know, you're up in Cairns. That's where Pat lives. It'd be really cool to get you guys sitting down together. Sort of that criminal that has now reformed and is studying law to sit down with you know, a magistrate that sentenced me. Um, so we did that and I got to ask her. I said, so you're up there, someone's come in and, and you've got to sentence them, okay? They've, they've done something wrong and you don't know their life story. Like how do you, how does that sit with you? How do you know? And she goes, look, if you've got a good lawyer, your lawyer will say, you know, you're this age, you went through this in your childhood, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I see this in court all the time where everyone's life is reduced to this 30-second snippet, really, you know, maybe a minute. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And a magistrate then has to hand down a decision that's going to affect the rest of your life based on a 30% spiel from your lawyer. But also, they've got this 30 seconds and they've got the 30 seconds from the prosecutor saying, well, you did this, this, this and this, you, you know, you deserve to go to prison. And she said, look, I, I just, I get what you're saying. And just went back to, you know, hopefully you, ha you have a real good lawyer. So it's a, it's a lawyer's position, the lawyer's job mm. to sell 
you as a defendant to to the magistrate and say, look, I, I don't know if on this occasion this person deserves this. Because as we're sitting here talking now, when you look at someone's life like that, you can connect the dots from here they are being arrested or in the court or going through some, you know, trouble. And you can trace it back, you know, the steps, you know, okay, well, they took this drug that made them act that way. Why did they take the drug? You know, history, background, childhood, all of that sort of stuff. And you can trace it back and you think, wow, this, you feel sorry for them. You know, you, yeah. you think, oh, this poor person went through this. It wasn't really their fault. It goes back to a time when they were conditioned that way. Um, and it's just incredible. And uh, that's what fascinates me. And obviously, I'm studying law and I'm, I'm going to be a defense lawyer, right? hopefully. You know, I'd like to defend people that are in need of defense, you know, that have had that through no fault of their own have have ended up where they are you know and i guess we have to still take some responsibility for what we do and what we have done of course um but i i wish we i wish we could connect the dots better in in the courtroom i I wish we could really sit down and go okay look let's actually look at what is troubling you what help can we give you instead of throwing away the key 100 percent so I'll come back to that because I've got some questions about like the childhood stuff and, and things yep. like that. I think that's really interesting. But what was your turning with all that stuff that went on? And obviously you had like some addiction issues and substance use issues going on in the background. What was the turning point for you? What kind of snapped you out of it? I know that's a funny term to use, but yeah. I, I got to rock bottom. Um, rock bottom for me was I had gone through a divorce. I had no friends, no family. I'd, I'd ended up in Cairns, which is you know I'm from Sydney, so I didn't know anyone here. Um, I've I've been able to build a really good life for myself here, but going back five or six years ago, which is still fairly recent, I was homeless, living on the Esplanade. I got dengue fever from uh, mosquito. It was just horrible, just being homeless and having and going to hospital and. Being in shelters, I was in a shelter where, you know, some guy, some Indigenous fellow stole my leopard print Vans skate shoes. Um, I got out of the shower and obviously there's not too many of those around. So I said, look, mate, that's my shoes. He said, oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> Gave him back. But, you know, being homeless, I went through a divorce. Uh, I'd lost my companies. I, I owned nothing, um, had no money. Really, that was rock bottom for me, and I actually I, I slit my own throat on the Cairns Esplanade, and Fucking I was taken hell, to the um, uh, what do you call it? You know, like your medical. Obviously, I, I had it all stitched up and stuff first, but then they had me in the like the suicide mental health ward. Yeah, that was like a life bulb moment for me. Um, what was really concerning is is I've been suicidal at times in my life before um and, and haven't succeeded thankfully um there's been times when it was just a cry for help or you know a, just wanted a little bit of attention um there were times when i was really really serious about it um you know i know now from studying psychology is that you have to take everybody seriously um you know you get a lot yeah. of people that say oh they're just doing this for attention i i hate that that's if they are doing it for attention they're doing it for a reason what's happening they need some help you know, they need some support or 100%. one day 
um, it's going to happen. So that's a whole nother topic, you know, in itself talking about suicide and mental health. But um, it was rock bottom for me. And I, I had, it sounds really weird, but I, I just thought I've lived through, I'd lived through a lot of stuff, a lot of trauma. I was, I was raped in prison. I was seriously assaulted in prison, had a lot of terrible things happen to me in prison. And, you know, I, I didn't think my life was worth living at the time, but I don't know what happened. It was just, it was really, I just woke up one day and said, look, I've gone through all of this stuff. I've, I've either do have to kill myself and that's the end. That's, that's, that's it. Or I need to use that stuff to help others. There's a reason. And I started seeing that there was a reason I was still alive. I was there. I had endured. And yeah. what was it? And for me, it was helping others. So I enrolled into psychology. Um, I was seeing a life coach at the time, a lady from Noosa, um, drove a Mercedes, really lovely lady, but had that typical white picket fence life. Um, She was really great. And she was helping me because I was so hopeless. Like I'm very articulate, well-spoken. I've educated myself, but you know, a few years ago, I wasn't, I wasn't like that. Um, I needed help just filling out a Centrelink form. Like I was just so depressed and helpless and hopeless. And, And there was a job provider agency that referred me to a life coach. So I didn't have to pay for it. And she was just helping me out with day-to-day life things. Do you need to go to the doctor? I can call the doctor and book you an appointment now. Do you need community support, community help, that sort of thing? And that was great. And you know what? I thought, I want to do that. So I started studying psychology, started writing books, and started promoting myself as a life coach. I thought, you know what? From now until you know the end of my life, I'm going to dedicate my life to helping others. Um, so I really started doing that. I, I started getting successful. I was making money. I was then able to pay rent. I was, you know, could do things. I could start other businesses. Um, and now still, I still do a little bit of that, but I also do a lot of volunteer work, community work. Um, and, I, and I'm just recently starting to get taken seriously. So as a law student, I make submissions to different uh different inquiries, parliamentary inquiries and reports and things like that. And recently I made a submission to the Queensland inquiry into decriminalising public offences of begging, public urination and public intoxication. And I did a really good submission. I was asked to go to Parliament to speak to Parliament about my submission and answer questions. And they just released a report last week that has my name in it. You know, five, six years ago, I was at rock bottom and thought, you know, I've, I don't have any hope or future. And, and now I'm in this place where I'm being taken seriously. I'm speaking in parliament and about the needs of others and how to help other people in our community. Um, and that is really rewarding. Um, I volunteer because volunteering boosts my self-esteem. And I tell anybody else that's struggling with, you know, low self-esteem or not feeling too good about themselves. If you're able to and, and go and volunteer and help somebody else, A, it's a distraction, you know, and it gets you out of that mindset of, you know, just sitting around um, feeling down about yourself, gets you out and about, 
And it's just so rewarding because you're going to be surrounded by other people that are giving you a pat on the back. Hey, thanks for your help. You know, that was great. We appreciate you. We care about you. And so, you know, I've, I've become a huge advocate for helping others. Um, even if you're in need of help yourself, I think uh, I, ha- I have helped myself through helping others. And, and I, yeah, huge advocate for that, for doing that. So that's really what Mate. got me out of it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And with all that traumatic stuff that happened, um, did you, and that happened in your childhood as well, like, did you do any type of like therapy or healing around that stuff? Or was there anything in particular that really helped? Or was it more just kind of, yeah, using the destruction of your past and, and diving headfirst into creating a better life for you that, that helped I, you to change things up? I had... It really comes down to one person, really. I, I had a psychologist. Um, he was great. I, I think I had like 10 free sessions or something like that, and I went into custody. He would come and visit me uh, basically for free to just do a session with me. Um, yeah. And, and now, we're, now we're good friends. Um, and I worked with him for probably probably two years. And the biggest thing wasn't, it wasn't that uh, it wasn't that he really did anything, you know, physically or said anything that just you know turned the lights on. I, I can't say that there was one moment and I thought, oh, that's the secret to life, and thank you, I'm cured, I'm saved. What it was for me was it was someone believing in me. So yeah. it was having that one person in my world when I was at absolute rock bottom, thinking, you know, I'm I'm a loser, I'm homeless, no one cares about me. I've alienated my friends and family. I'm alone. Having some person that said, well, you know what? I care enough about you to drive up an hour and a half to the prison to sit with you for an hour every week and just believe in me. He believed that I could study. He said, why don't you enroll in uni? I thought, I can't. I haven't finished school. I haven't finished year 10. I haven't finished year 12. He helped me find a way and he believed and he said, look, you're really intelligent. You're really smart. You've got a lot of lived experience. You can help people. And it was that. It was the belief. Um, now, that's the, that's really hard because you can't just tell someone that's struggling, look, just go out and find someone that believes in you. Sometimes yeah. it's not that easy. Uh, yeah. It, it's something that, that's out of your control. <laughs> but if you do have someone that believes in you, it's an incredible thing. Mate, it's really interesting Um I was just at a conference in Tasmania, um, like a, it was called Reframing Addiction, put on by Anglicare. Anyway, there was a, who, who I know, I'm going to try and get him on the podcast as well. Um, sorry, my dog is hassling me here. Um, yeah, and, and he's a, he's a um, psychiatrist, right? And he basically got up and sort of like spoke about how, um, how CBT and motivational interviewing doesn't work, (laughs) you know, Um, and that a lot of like the therapists that he employs and the, and um, I don't know, the, the therapy practices that they try and focus on is uh, just like that humanistic human connection approach, that intangible stuff 
that just is super healing, you know. I call it I call it the hairdresser effect. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people <laughs> talk about that they get better counseling from their hairdresser than they do, um, you know, their actual counselor or the psychologist or whatever. And I think it's because it's just that, you know, just that normal human connection that's created that's yep. really powerful. And And you're right, it's really hard to communicate how that works to people, tell people that when they're in a space of crisis and whatever. But the more you can, I think, yeah, focus on some of those like community aspects, do like, what do they call it? Like semantic healing practices where you're in your body. Um, I'll probably fuck that up. I'll, I'll look it up and correct <laughs> it later. But, you know, just, yeah, that stuff around emotion and connection and empathy and it goes a long way, doesn't it? Yeah, yep, it does. Um they actually did a study in the UK a few years ago. They were running low on psychologists and counsellors and someone had the idea, hey, there's a, there's a bunch of hairdressers that are, that are really good. We, we should um, train hairdressers to be psychologists so you could go get your hair done, talk about your life and um, get a little bit of therapy um, while you're at it. Interestingly enough, they found that once they had trained the hairdressers to be psychologists, they weren't as helpful. <laughs> they were left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They it's weren't, interesting. They weren't genuine. They weren't just having that, you know, genuine conversation, you know, tell us about your week. And it was like, oh, okay, let me try and diagnose you. And, oh, maybe you've got this going on. So it got really clinical. And yeah. and people, you know, basically said, hey, look, I'm, I was not as, as helped as I was before. So interesting one when you brought up the hairdressers. I always loved that study because they say yeah. that Personal, it is really good. Pers- <laughs> That's right. Personal trainers, hairdressers, all that kind yep. of stuff. It's amazing. So, so just quickly, like, um, I, I agree with you. Um, well, well, first thing that I wanted to say is again, I just like, I can't believe that, you know, the experience with like the criminal justice system that you had was, um, because of, um, those, just kind of like stupid offenses. And then as a result of that, structurally in terms of probably the progression of the rest of your life, like in the, and, and the way in which, you know, a criminal conviction or, or whatever you want to call it gets in the way of progressing your life, but then also like the trauma that you experienced as a result of engaging in the justice system, all that stuff. I can't believe all that happened just from, yeah, like dressing up in a clown suit or just doing some something silly when you're intoxicated. It's horrible to think that that's people's experience and it's really cool that you're really focused on. I imagine that's what you want to do once you finish your law degrees, like criminal justice reform and stuff like yep, that. Yeah, um, But I also wanted to ask you about like that whole thing that you are talking about at the very start around um, just like your developmental years as um you know like a child and the impact that that had on your life and then the different things that you anchored anchored within your psychology um you know all that sort of stuff like you you kind of mentioned the stuff that happened with your mom and all of that i saw like a post that you did on instagram we have a lot of like family members and parents that listen to this like program as well um if you don't mind me asking, like, what's your relationship now with, um, like, your family? Um, did, were you were you like angry and resentful about any of those things that happened in your life and the way that you were brought up? Um, how did you go back and 
um, how, you know, heal or help yourself in those areas, you know, all that kind of stuff. I know that's like a big question yeah. or a lot of questions all at once, but um, yeah. So I'm the eldest of eight kids. I've got uh Wow, fucking brother. hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, it's so hard when you've got an hour because you think you're trying to put your life in, into that, you know. Um, yeah. I've got the one full brother, so same mum and same dad. My dad, my mum remarried, uh, I don't know, many years later and I've got, uh, she had another child, so I've got another brother. He's 18, so he's the youngest. So I'm 32, he's 18, bit of a difference. Uh, my dad got remarried. Uh, he's got uh, two girls and I've got a disabled brother. He's got fragile X syndrome. Um, right. And then he had, or before that actually, he had, um, I had another sister with another mum. So we've got all these kids sort of, we've only really connected all of us in the last few years because it's hard when you have different mums and dads and, and live in different places. A lot of the time, like you can grow up and you don't actually, you don't know them, which is yeah. really sad because I love my brothers and sisters so much. Um, I'm the only member of my family that talks to everybody. Yeah. I'm just like that. I, I don't hold grudges. Again, it comes back to I still want that love, attention, that need. I've got siblings. I've got a brother that's just started talking to my mum again. They've had about, didn't talk for about four years. Uh, he's just stopped talking to my dad recently. Uh, one of my sisters is the same. And so they've got a lot of, uh, I think they've got a lot of trauma um hate anger sadness as well and that's just their way of dealing with it and just you know they've they've made that decision but for me i'm always trying to bring people together i see the best in people i also have a very good understanding i when i was in prison and i was like thinking of, like sitting in a cell by myself looking at the wall thinking about how did i get here and with that psychological, I've you know got that bit of experience obviously now with psychology and things, so I can look at things differently. Mm. I I look back and then I've traced my parents' um, lives back to you know and sort of worked out why they were the way they were. Um, my mm. dad, he had two parents that loved him so much that couldn't couldn't live together. They were on opposite sides of Australia, and in the middle of the night, one would you know basically abduct him and then take him to the other side of Australia and then his right. dad abduct him in the middle of the night or pick him up from school so he had these two parents that were <laughs> fighting over trying to take him which was the opposite yeah. of what happened to me and I thought hey my dad didn't love me because he sort of just gave up and went this is too hard mm. he did that because he didn't want me to go through what he went through as a child where he had two parents fighting over each other he hated that, you know, one day he'd be there with his grandparents and his cousins and he'd have a life and friends at school. And then, you know, in the blink of an eye, he's now on the other side of Australia in a new school having to make new friends. Yeah. So I did a lot of my own soul searching, but, you know, I really went back to my parents and tried to understand. And I guess I'm not making excuses for what they did. Um, some people might think that I am. But I'm really just getting to the bottom of, well, why did they do that? Um, yeah. 
and it's having that understanding. But some people are understanding and some people aren't. You know, my brothers and sisters, they don't care. Um, you know, they're just like, look, you did this thing that I think was wrong and, and that's it. Um, and that's completely okay as well. I mean, if that's how, if that's the choice that you have made that you think is good for you and your mental health, then, you know, maybe you have to do it. But um, I think I've just, everyone's different. I've, I've got a different personality. Again, comes back to wanting, I still want my parents to love me. I still want to, yeah. I still want them to give me that attention. Um, so I probably mm. let a few things slide as well, but I'm, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big believer in, in not necessarily that people change, but that as you get older, you can't become more aware of what you're doing. You know, yeah. when you're younger, you do do a lot of stupid things. Mm. And so I think for me, I'm the eldest. So maybe that's mm. a thing as well. You know, I'm sort of like, Hey, I'm old now and I've done a lot of stupid things and I've gone to prison and I've done this and I've done drugs. So like, who am I to judge? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I couldn't give you a real clean, clean cut. No, no, no. There, it, but it, it makes sense. And it's, it's the, it's, it's what a lot of people say is that, you know, go, it, as you said, it, it's not, it's not like an excuse or, or a justification, but it can help a lot of people to kind of go, well, these are the mistakes that I made in my life because of, you know, the stuff that happened here. Um, well, what happened to the people that maybe made some mistakes that in, in their life that caused me some hurt and pain and whatever, and what were the things that led up to, to that? And you can kind of have that compassion and understanding yeah, which yeah. doesn't make it all better, but it just it just creates that that space of letting go and moving on. I suppose you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how, how did you? Last question with all this, because this is what everybody's always fascinated in, and that's what people always ask me. Because I'm big on this stuff as well. I think it's like the thing that drives all human behavior is like what happens in your developmental years. What are the what are the stories that you tell yourself about yourself and the rest of the world as a result of those things? Um, and, and then how does that like kind of flow on and affect the rest of your life and your identity and all that kind of stuff? Like, how did you reshape that? You know, you mentioned that a lot of the things that you do are for, for love and it's still there, but how did you just kind of channel that into a more positive, um, positive frame rather than a self-destructive one? that word frame is is key because that's all it's about um i think when people talk about change i mean i talk about change a lot and i tell people look if you want to change your life you can do this and you can do that change is such a scary word and it's hard you know to make change you've got to do you've got to practice a lot of things you've got to do a lot of things it's hard work a simple thing is the reframing of something. Yeah, So 100%. for me, it was just the reframing of really not, not I had, didn't fundamentally change as a person. I'm still the same person with the same insecurities, the same beliefs, the same values. But what I've done is just re, reframe, really reframe it. So that internal belief that I have that I'm not good enough Instead of being depressed about it, you know, using drugs and getting into trouble and then 
as a result, this is a funny thing as well. It's not funny, but it's a sad thing. That then leads to you doing things that make you not good enough. You know, like, yeah. I tell you what, when I was sitting in a prison cell, I wasn't thinking, geez, this really makes me feel good about myself. You know, it had the opposite effect. So then it becomes like a tumbleweed that grows. And then before you know it, you're really not feeling good about yourself. And because you've built a life around you that is not actually very good. So to just change that mindset and go, well, how can this drive me? And for me, it was, you know, going to uni to study, educate myself, finish school, help others get out and about in the community, do good things, boost that self-worth. I've just reframed that not feeling good enough into still trying to be good enough but doing positive things. And now, you know, when people look at my life, they think, man, I'm surprised you still feel that way about yourself because you've got a pretty good life. So it's just about trying to get that tumbleweed to grow or that plant that seed in another space and it's just that simple reframe it if you can just reframe really who you are internally your beliefs and values mate it's so it's so interesting i couldn't agree more it's it's not the only thing there's obviously a complex cake mix that goes in for everyone but i i found that for me like a game changer um, free unsolicited advice for everyone out there. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like just, just, and it's kind of like, I never understood that, you know, people often say in like a self, I don't know if you found this like self-development space, do the work, do the work, do the work. And I'd be like, what the fuck is the work? You know? <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's kind of what I've found it is, is like, yeah, when, when you, when you kind of work out a new story for yourself, actively kind of having those different inputs and telling yourself that repeatedly to reframe it in a different way. And eventually it fucking sticks. It's like, it's like going to the gym, you know, if you, if you do, if you do a bicep curl enough times, it starts to grow your muscle and it's the same like mentally and in your identity and mindset. If you do the reframing enough times and tell yourself a different story, a different belief starts to stick, you know, yep. and, and then that flows into everything else that you do. And then you're like Shane and you ha- fucking have a law degree. <laughs> Look, a, a, another big thing is, is neuroplasticity. And, and we know now yep. that people have the ability to actually change um, in their mind. The brain actually changes over time and it yeah. go, goes back to practice. Um, yep. So I practice now doing things that make me feel good about myself. Um, yep. and it, I love man. it because I, I do I feel a lot better <laughs> love it well hey it's been so cool to talk to you and just like hear all the great stuff that you're doing um, and yeah just to it's it's inspiring really to be honest with you mate just like to kind of overcome some of that horrific shit um, and, and be where you are now it's, it's awesome um, so if people have like connected and they want to I don't know just see what you're doing or reach out or whatever where's the best place to find you um, look I'm pretty big on Instagram at the moment um, I've just started getting into TikTok yeah, I'm really on everything you know, I'm on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter yep. Instagram um, I've got a lot of really cool content on YouTube um it's not super popular but really great stuff about the mind and things like that like if people are more interested in the psychological aspect 
um, there's some great stuff there. Yeah. Well, awesome, mate. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. I'll make sure I link to all that um, in the in the show notes. And and yeah, man, um, maybe we'll get you back on in a little while and and hear what the chapter two is. <laughs> hey, pleasure. <laughs> awesome. We'll do. Thanks, mate. Okay, there you go. Beautiful people. First show for 2023. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, thanks again for staying tuned and bearing with me and being MIA. Um, really f- looking forward to bringing some original content this year and some different stuff. Um, again, can't stress enough. Uh, we're going to put a lot of work into our email newsletter this year, um, pretty much because I'm finding it really fun to do. So um, subscribe to that. Link will be in the show notes if you haven't already. Uh, leave us some reviews and some stars. Helps us to push up through the ranks and help more people. Um, and look, everybody, I hope you're having a good new year, four or five days in or whatever we are. Um, and uh, yeah, wish you all the uh, success and happiness and joy for 2023. All right, look forward to vibing in your ears again soon. Peace.